Welcome, everyone, to the first proper segment for the podcast TransAsia and the World. This segment is going to be on political violence, and the next several episodes will concern that theme. To get us started, we've got Professor William Marotti from the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, here today via Skype. He, he received his doctorate from the East Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of Chicago. His research is on the relationship between left-wing politics and art, but he is also very concerned with how Japan fit into the global moment of the 1960s. And we're excited to have him today. So, Professor Marotti, I guess before we get into any of the sort of nitty-gritty details on political violence and the study of it, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into this kind of research, what drew you to Japan, etc.? Well, I will try to answer that question without eating up the entire podcast with a rambling answer that, that would probably leave you uh, no, no, with no better clue than when we started. Um, uh, I would say <laughs> I've always been drawn to things that are a little bit offbeat and ideas and good pedagogy. And what that meant in my case uh, was a college experience in which on the one hand, I did a whole bunch of Southeast Asian history, having discovered that uh, at Michigan that uh, Victor Lieberman was a really excellent teacher, and I wanted to take a lot of classes with him, which ranged across the Vietnam War and Burma and Southeast Asian history and so forth. And I sort of branched out from that and did some Chinese philosophy, and, and somewhere along the lines did a course in Chinese and Japanese literature and translation. That literary approach to things and the kind of complexity that you get in works of literature was appealing to me. I also came across some strange uh, performance groups coming in from Japan in the, this, I was, I was in college from 84 to 88, uh, you know, in the 19th century. And uh, this is when uh, some of the Buto troops like Sankajuku started to tour. And it was back when they were actually pretty radical. This was when uh, the the Taiko troop uh, Kodo uh, was first touring as well. And they were, they also still had that original strange radicality. And so I checked these things out not as a sort of introduction to exotica, but rather, you know, they sort of occupied my mind as, as you know, a, a kind of interesting footnote together with the literature, which is, hmm, you know, Japan seems to be a place with, with some people with some really interesting ideas. And being a little bit uh, of an oddball myself, that felt good and somehow fell into you know, a whole sort of uh, postponing that was also going on uh, and somehow lays all of this. But anyway, I'd originally thought about doing maybe Chinese history. And it was right when I was thinking about this that Tiananmen happened and kind of knowing myself. And so, you know, this does go to some questions of violence too, right? Knowing myself, I kind of thought, you know, I'm going to get myself in serious trouble. And, and also things look really... Ugly, and I couldn't see much hope in that direction for a while. And I started to think about my Japan interests again, and and kind of started reading and got more interested as I read. And in the end, went back to school at age twenty four for an intensive year long language course at Cornell, the the now defunct uh, Japan Falcon program there, the full year concentration program, um, and then went to Chicago the year after. This is kind of how things happen, and one of the, the concerns of being a historian is not to take the contingency out of actuality and substitute in a kind of nifty, easy narrative. 
uh, when you want to be when you want to be adequate to events and things. And so my own history and coming into doing Japanese history, I think, sort of bears bears some of that out. Sure. No, I mean, no, that makes that makes total sense. I guess this is an easy segue then to you. What is exact? What exactly does it mean to study political violence or violence in general? So at a preparatory level, we we should talk a little bit about these categories because I think both those words seem like things that everybody knows what they are, right? Political, we all know what that is. Violent, we all know what that is. And in fact, I think both tend to be a lot more connected to things that we wouldn't put in those categories. So, for example, if we think about the political, if we think about sort of norms of politics, if we think about voting, if we think about interest groups and so forth, what we end up starting to talk about often is a a set of, of status quo categories. And in fact, I think some of those categories are precisely not a source of politics, but maybe a source of administrative politics, which if we're thinking about questions of democracy, of voice and so forth, you know, it's, I mean, these, these are questions that are hard to avoid in an era in which people who do studies of these things discover that uh, effectively, for example, voting in America has almost negligible effect in terms of getting your policies carried out, or just the voice of an average person that, you know, effectively we have an oligarchy in terms of, you know, who can speak and who can carry policies into action. Interestingly, though, those studies run before the era of Trump. And, you know, some things seem to be in motion in ways that maybe we give the lie to some of that. Who knows? But those motions tend to be outside of the usual way of doing things. And it's precisely those kinds of things, I think, are what politics are. Politics, on the one hand, involves the assertion of a position, of a voice that's really not accorded within within the status quo, within the way things are. And the other hand, can involve forms of association for groups not recognized, for demands not recognized, um, for articulation of wrong, for, for all sorts of things. So that's the complicated footnote that I want to put on question of politics and the political. If politics means, if politics involves sort of the assertion of positions that I get, that aren't articulated in the status quo, what are, what do we do with the state then? A lot of scholars like to talk about politics or ideologies that are hegemonic. We always call them political, but those are absolute needs and interests that are being actively articulated and their interests are always prima facie. So what, what do we do with them? If you're asking me about strategies for action with the state, then we are going to segue to this question about villains. Not that I'm suggesting, oh, you know, this will involve Molotov kills and God knows what, or rather a question about legitimacy and about democracy. And look, I'm a historian. I'm not a political theorist. My interest is in explaining particularly moments of political conflict, but also assertions and demands for doing things different or assertions of equality, of solidarity, of demands against a a system or a situation found to be inadequate or connected to obscure and non-obscure forms of suffering, of domination, and so forth. So, you know, the question of how political movements register or 
transform state activity? You know, for me, is an empirical question because it, it's a historical question. On the other hand, having a good answer or having a good account of how some of these interactions happen can give some clarity or maybe help to people contending with similar issues in the present. History is in the present. It's the mode in which we with the past as a dimension of the present. So I'm interested in getting it right, but also at some level, you know, looking at uh, the ways in which it means for us today. That doesn't mean cooking the books. It doesn't mean, you know, obscuring things or being distorted by us, so forth, these kinds of accusations that are made, usually with a very poor understanding of what exactly history is and the role of interpretation. But I want to give as adequate an account of the past as I can about things that I think matter. Right. So that would include, for example, thinking through why exactly one faction in the Japanese New Left or wherever decided that violence was a appropriate mode for their politics, whereas another group chose to be pacifist. So, for example, in the case of, I believe you read my uh, my AHR article on Japan 1968, and that's concerns this fairly momentous decision, and actually last-minute decision, by the triple coalition called SAMPA to contest the departure of Prime Minister Sato physically. But I think a few things are really necessary to sort of take on board in order to understand how this works and what the parameters are. So first of all, it's not that this was a nonviolent situation and the students inter- introduced violence. In fact, for years and certainly even in the, the 1960 struggles against the US Japan Security Treaty, riot police were there and were breaking heads and even killing people and causing serious injuries. The Sinagawa protests in the 50s, the Bloody May Day, on and on. There's this use of force by the state. But when you start asking those questions, you very quickly get to this much more important question about legitimacy in the state. I mean, this is a very, very varying question about the state having monopoly on the use of force as not monopoly in terms of Nobody can do anything forceful, but rather, I mean, it's about legitimacy. It's about, you know, the state has power and rights and so forth. And the assumption is sort of to contradict that, that private uses of force are criminal, are wrong, are whatever. But what happens when, you know, force is deployed in order to silence democratic protests? What happens when force is deployed? in order to be in league with a murderous foreign war or to be involved in all kinds of of troubling projects. And so the other point is, it's not that the students decide to use force and then pick up a bunch of machetes or break into an arms locker somewhere and start gutting policemen left and right. There's a very complicated relationship between the kind of force that can be used and the kind of regime that's there. So in Indonesia in 1965, the state and the military are involved in wiping out, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people, just murdering them. And uh, this is something that my colleague Jeff Robinson has written on. In Japan, there's no 
thousands of bodies situation. What there is is a very complicated relationship in which Japan is is this poster child for American-led modernization. Both the opposition parties and the LDP alike run on a peace and democracy program and platform. And the argument is this is a democratic place. And so there really are limits in what they can do to put down their own citizens when their citizens contest things. By the same token, these student groups, you know, they want to it's force that is really calling on the state to ante up with the level of force that they're really prepared to use or use without reporting, without visibility in order to force the issues that they are supporting, that they're going to be, you know, that they're full on in support of the U.S. and the Vietnam War with the new administration there in 67, 68, all this stuff. And that they're prepared to bring in riot police and beat up, beat up their citizens, beat up their people. And to make that sort of come out into the open is kind of a signature 60s move all around the globe. Again, with this important question of what kind of state are you dealing with and what follows? And even where, right? I mean, I've seen footage of during the Watts riots and the Durban Rebellion there of, you know, a military uh, APC firing a machine gun in Watts. A heavy machine gun. <laughs> a vehicle-mounted machine gun. That's, But that works in Watts. There were no machine guns at, say, Columbia or Michigan during student protests. And stayed another problem, but anyway. So my point is that there's this kind of delicate balance or complicated balance about the very issue and perception of violence and who is violent. And so what the students want to show is that actually this visit by Sato to South Vietnam, this other visit by Sato to, to go see Johnson in, in, in D.C., that these things, though they sound like you know normal sort of state visits and so forth, they're, they're connected to murderous violence. And the state is prepared to really hurt its citizens in order to carry it out. So after hearing you talk for a few minutes about this, it seems like like the things I'm thinking about are Fox News and Black Lives Matter. Like, why would you, you know, so any any possible um, argument given by anybody affiliated with that group that doesn't fit in a utopian sense with whatever the most passive, non-threatening version of their politics to the state is, any violation of that definition by whatever pundit is automatically justification to throw them off as violent usurpers who are going to destroy everything about America ever. That's right. And so you realize then that with some fairly, you know, distortive, even violent rhetoric, you have the sort of slandering of an entire political group because an essential part of that politics is a demand for recognition and a demand for equality and a demand to take the violence that is besetting them seriously. And so the response is not to argue, oh, no, it's not happening. The, the response is to caricature that demand as, you know, as somehow having an, an invisible, you know, only in front of Black Lives Matter. And and I actually, Black Lives Matter is, is, is an excellent case for understanding something about the way in which demands for 
equality demands for human dignity and and for not being mangled by by your government. Uh, on the one hand, deal with structural forms of violence that masquerade as other things, as as policing, as as you know, who knows what, or or oh, you know, a series of completely unconnected, absolutely parallel individual <laughs> encounters, each to be taken up one by one and dismissed. Whereas on the other hand, I, I find it interesting that people can't quite wrap their heads around this. That basically we have the testing of a, of a universal statement. If you think it's true that all lives matter, then it has to be true in all cases. So you try, you try this statement, black lives matter. And then you ask the question, well, do they? And if they don't, if, you know, there's, there's endless amounts of practices and violence that make that untrue, then to continue with the universal statement is to give a lie about that. Is to cloak it, is to, you know, give an excuse and to caricature it as if it's as if it's objecting to the universal statement on the basis of partiality. It's no, it's a full demand for justice on the level that the universal statement says that it's doing, right? Lives matter. Good. Great. Let's do that. It's it's really quite interesting to see the ways in which people's brains exclude that basic concept. Right. And it seems to me that it, like sort of coterminous, I mean, if we, if we stick with sort of contemporary America right now, there are sort of this constant ways in which multiple people are all claiming the right to use violence or to have the right to access the right, you know, to have the right to use violence if they so choose all the time. Gun rights lobby. I get to use my gun to defend myself if I perceive myself threatened. But when the protesters in the street and it's the cop that seems to be threatening them, those things somehow are not the same. So if, if I can run this back to Japan and 68 for a second, there's an interesting episode, I believe it's 69 actually, but on the Iwakuni base, there's a Marine detachment that has this sit down with a general to address basically what he's perceiving as disorder, as, as even violence. And, and basically uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, twenty African American Marines and ten and ten uh, white ones, and essentially it's the African American ones who are leading the discussion. It was recorded and it was published in the Peace and Vietnam Committee's English language bulletin called UMPO uh, in 1970, and it reads like a play script, which is interesting in and of itself. And you know, interestingly. What they say is, you know, look, we've, we've had all of these racial incidents, and every time it happens, it's treated like, you know, an, an individual thing and an aberration, but there's no addressing of the systemic nature of this thing, and there's no adequate mechanism for uh, attending to it or even recognizing it as a larger problem. And it's also connected to what they perceive as the attitudes that they then face off the base. The soldiers put it in terms of in terms of, hey, there were there were no African Americans in the Enola Gay. We didn't nuke these people. Who taught them to disrespect us? And, you know, again and again, what they say is when someone directs the N-word at me, it's an assault. And they try and try and try and try to get the general 
to recognize that. He's, he's, he's kind of incapable of seeing it. And actually, the language is quite precise. It's an assault is, is not an attack. An assault is something that causes fear of an attack. And, you know, I think it was perfectly reasonable to attach that expectation of violence to a word that is, you know, drenched in blood. And so, for their part, this was uh, a matter of violence. And for the general, it was a matter of order and also an order that didn't recognize the violence that was happening to these soldiers all the damn time. Right. That makes, no, that makes total sense. So we've, we've sort of dealt with several different types of violence. There's the constant violence of the state that either is, is actually enacting violence on its citizens or in other places in the world or reserves the right to do so whenever it chooses to. Obviously, at the same time you're talking about violence in Vietnam is happening, etc., where quite literally massacres are happening. And then there's also the, I guess there's protest violence, which up until so far in our conversation has only been left-wing protest for the moment. Um, I don't I don't think that left-wing pro- protest is the only form of political violence there is. So maybe to, uh, in the spirit of balance, as is so often talked about, are there examples of right-wing or conservative violence that you sort of, that you see sort of politically functioning in the same sorts of ways as the 1960s examples that you've given us so far? Or is there something fundamentally different about you know, violence motivated by a left-wing politics versus a right-wing politics. And I know those categories are very open-ended, so feel free to collapse them down however you please. I guess I would say something about, separate from the broad strokes of those categories, just a question of what is the protest movement about? What is the claim, claim of non-recognition, the claim of systemic violence, the claim of racism, the claim of whatever? What is the nature of the claimed wrong? And then what is the response? And I don't rule out that you can have some sort of protest coming from the right. Um, Although, you know, it's also the case that, and interestingly the case that in many circumstances in the 60s, there were uh, coalitions that cut across right and left, usually happening when uh, there was a perception of some sort of violation of the norms of a community. So, for example, police coming onto a campus using force would often create coalitions, here I'm talking about in the United States, coalitions that involve conservative students allied with the other ones saying, no, you don't get to do that, that that's stepping over the line. And so... Again, the, the preformed political associations went by the wayside in favor of some new articulation that said, no, this is, this is not okay, and we are the group that says this is not okay. And from the same standpoint, I think that a lot of you know, politics that is it's somewhere on the, to the extent that this label means anything, the left side of the spectrum, was also a whole bunch of series of, of, of no statements to sort of off-the-shelf versions of, of, of leftism, post-Stalin, post-Hungary, uh, and then post-Prague, and, and on and on. And with, you know, if we, if we talk about, say, France uh, or Italy, places where, you know, there's a communist party, there's a communist party in the parliament, and yet it functions basically like a party. 
And instead of, you know, as like in America after the Red Scare, a kind of third rail that is starts to look like any other form of administrative politics and getting new coalitions that don't line up along sort of hierarchical lines of these, you know, sort of old left political forums. We've mostly been talking about sort of what is sort of conceptually, what are these uh, categories of violence, political violence? How do they function historically? How to think about actors, which I'm going to take as, you know, which I'm taking as sort of answers to what sorts of things do we think about when we talk about the study of political violence? And we've also made several allusions to the study of political violence and its import today. But I guess sort of I'll, I guess I'll ask that question sort of very explicitly is do you see the, I guess, sort of scholarship on, the, I guess, the work that people like yourself and hopefully I eventually uh, do, ha, do you see any sort of functional role for us today or is our job to educate and sit? So I think scholarship is scholarship. It's different than, it's different than you know, political activism or, or any of these other things. On the other hand, there's something to be gained by having uh, analyses that, you know, on the one hand, are adequate to talking about moments of transformative politics or uh, foment or what have you. Not not so much for lessons, but you can't predict when and how things will speak to to readers to other situations. That just this this also goes to sort of this notion of politics that comes up quite a bit actually when you're talking about art that you know oh isn't this you know sort of uh unserious relative to the sort of straight ahead political action that is called for today or before or whatever and my answer to that is that no one can really give you an adequate roadmap to how things have political effect in advance anyway things happen and in unpredictable ways, not not indeterminate, but but unpredictable. People start caring about something for some strange reason, or things come together. There's this uh, what should have been a moment where the left, the uh, the student radicals, were uh, run off the field by a uh, riot police response becomes because of because they have a police riot and beat up the citizens and beat up the press and beat up people who actually write about this stuff becomes a, a mode by which the legitimacy of the government is questioned. You know, there's, there's an unpredictability in things like that. So your job is to do it right, <laughs> to do the history right as adequately as possible. Now, I think there's there's a question about sort of the relationship between, say, working on Japan and other parts of the world too, right? And, you know, we spent a fair amount of this interview talking about things that seem to be not Japan, and yet uh, I think are absolutely at work in political conflict and violence there, which I could also you know collect, connect back to the whole decolonial problematics and, and the notion of of the ways in which structural violence happens, and and you know there's there's racial dimensions to that, and all kinds of things. Um, but without spiraling out of control in that direction, I would say something about why work in Japan can matter. And it's something that, you know, I've, I've had arguments with people about before. And it usually starts with something about 
perhaps theory. You know, I employ political, perceptual, theoretical work in my analyses. And I do so not because uh, I've got a bunch of books and I've got to justify having them, but rather uh, I think that they speak to actual dimensions of of phenomena. And at the point, they provide a way of talking about things that then opens it up for people who are concerned about other areas, events, times, locations, that they can recognize things that are in common that didn't know about. That's been, you know, part of how my work has been taken up. And, you know, whether it was that 68 panel or going out to talk to, you know, my, my friend's uh, class on Mexico in the 60s or, uh, I mean, it's a very long list. But it, it goes to locating Japan and events there as part of events in the world. And I mean, everything's always distinctive. Everything's always particular. But that particularity can have commonalities too, and even weird forms of solidarity. And to get those dimensions and not just to sort of say, well, I'm just going to look at this little thing over here, and that, that will then treasure this little thing and, and, and value it. It's, you know, no, you're, you're denying the possibility for you know, events, people in Japan to be speaking, speaking on the globe, to be speaking, you know, coevally with, you know, and as, as important and as, as fraught and complicated as anything uh, at the same time. And even to be caught up in global events, in phenomena that are worth thinking about. And, and that sort of synchronic connection can also be a means for thinking about it later, for it to speak to someone else in another time, in Japan, or here, or where have you. So one of the big, as I understand it, um, things that make sort of the moment of the mid-20th century unique, especially in terms of politics, is this massive revolutions in in media, etc., with the advent of television and the expansion of radio, even further than it already was. I guess, do you see, as we you know are now solidly in another century, do you see that something... Do you see the questions that, you know, studies of politics are taking up or the ways in which the uh, the activists are actually behaving that you keep track of are radically different now in the age of the Internet than they were in the age of television? So, you know, on the one hand, you can get things organized pretty quickly and in darling viral ways, and that's really interesting. And it seems now to have met uh, a response in the form of viral state attacks on on protests as well. That's pretty disturbing too. I mean, there's there are there are new dimensions of this stuff. On the other hand, they're very familiar in the sense of you know contestation over legitimacy, forms of of uh, you know distorting or ignoring or animalizing or criminalizing the content of protest. Those are very familiar to me. What I found especially interesting, though, and this is actually something that a panelist of mine touched on in the in the, the global and local 60 panel in January in CSC span, is that the memory of the 60s and their role, or that role, the role of that history in people's protests, that there's been a kind of return to maybe a nostalgic form of 60s protest that imagines that 
some of the earlier forms that were seen retroactively and by a kind of not very good history as as politer or you know more reasonable that those things actually worked and that you know other ones didn't and we have sort of the the occlusion of of a really good accurate memory of the 60s. We have nostalgic versions of, like, for example, protests aimed at the diet, which, you know, were beside the point as of, you know, mid-June 1960 in Japan, somehow coming back. And so, you know, these kinds of, we demand things of the diet, we display our democratic voice, and then the diet's supposed to, you know, drop everything and forget that it's multiply compromised and so forth and suddenly do the right thing. That's kind of odd and, and, and strange in my book, the sort of mismemory of things. Some of it's extraordinarily consequential, especially, you know, if we're talking about the 60s, one of the worst problems of dealing with it is is the mismemory of, of Vietnam protests and especially the erasure of uh, soldier protests and, and, and forms of resistance. You know, the kinds of things that are talked about in the, the documentary, um, Sir No Sir, um, the kinds of things that were discussed um, in the Winter Soldier Project, the thing that that brought John Kerry originally to prominence is his 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 testimony about another kind of systemic violence, about the kind of wars that create situations where you will have atrocities occurring. They just will be there; they will happen, and and it's not the fault of the soldiers there. It's the fault of a situation that creates that automatically calls forth these things. You know, I was at the 50th anniversary commemoration of the uh, the October 8th, 1967 Haneda incident um, where a student was, was killed. His name was Yamazaki. And there was a, a discussion, the event of this exhibit that had been held in Vietnam that involved some of the from, from the Peace of Vietnam Committee from uh, student activism and so forth, and one of the one of the main activists was talking about victims, and he even said, you know, in a sense, uh, the American soldiers do. I thought that that was a really interesting, a really interesting standpoint. Wonderful. All right, so Professor, I know you have to go, so thank you so much. All of your comments were wonderfully interesting, and I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you, Sam. I appreciate the the serious questions, and and you know, uh, I hope I hope that this. Uh, this edits down to, uh, to something that seems uh, uh, reasonably coherent. This was the first episode in our segment on political violence, and we'll begin our episodes with young, young scholars and graduate students starting with the next episode. If you would like to check out some sources related to today's topics, look, please check out our website at tra- transasiapod.wordpress.com. You can also find us on Twitter at transasiapod. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Department of History, and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Katherine Randall. See you next time, everyone.